Hello, John Elder here, Science Editor with The New Daily. Welcome to the COVID Conversation. Today we're talking about privacy, how to protect ourselves from ourselves and from the range of snoops that inhabit and poke around in our digital lives. What is privacy anyway? Is it salvageable or has the horse bolted and galloping about sharing our secrets with everybody else? Discussing these issues, I have two guests from Melbourne Law School, the University of Melbourne. Professor Jeannie Patterson is the co-director of the Centre for AI and Digital Ethics. Her research has three interrelated strands, support for vulnerable and disadvantaged consumers, the ethics and regulation of new technologies in consumer markets. Think of that demon god phone that leads you about by the nose and who is tracking you. And regulatory design for protecting consumer rights and promoting fair, safe and accountable AI. Hello and welcome, Jeannie. Hello. Also with us today is Professor Megan Richardson, one of a group of scholars convened by the Australian Law Reform Commission to explore the meaning of privacy for its privacy reference, and in addition served on the consultative group for the New South Wales Law Reform Commission's Privacy Review. Uh, Megan teaches an underground, uh, not an underground, an undergraduate course, maybe it is underground these days, privacy, law and social networks, which I imagine draws a decent crowd. And she's author of The Right to Privacy, Origins and Influence of a 19th Century Idea, a book I have not as yet read and need to do so. She's just sent to her publishers the manuscript of a new book, Advanced Introduction to Privacy Law. Hello and welcome, Megan. Hi. And I should say, actually, I've been involved in two Australian Law Reform Commission reviews. That's been going on for a while. They have. Uh, Firstly, I'd like to ask both both of you why the issue of privacy and privacy law uh, is of interest to you and and why and how it matters to you, starting with you, Jeannie. Oh, thanks, John. Uh, Well, I'm actually interested in consumer protection law, but increasingly, uh, particularly with the growth of um, online goods and services and digital technologies, privacy is part of the expectations that consumers have about products that are fair, safe and fit for purpose. So it's an issue that's become of great interest to me and I think of great importance to consumers. And okay, and what drew you to privacy law, Megan Richardson? I've always been interested in privacy as a subject and I was very fortunate that when I first started as an academic, there weren't many people thinking and working in that area as a legal area in Australia. So I just happened to write an article early on, which was published. And then when the Australian Law Reform Commission had its first review that I had a very small involvement in, actually, that was the one that uh, led to some quite major changes to our Privacy Act, I was able to be part of that and it made me very interested. And then I kept on writing and working in the area, teaching in the area. And then there was another review specifically about a privacy tort that was I was also involved in in, in a small way, and I've just kept being interested in it as a law reform subject. I come from a background in law reform, and I see this as an area of law that's constantly in the process of reform and perhaps could even be more so. Jeannie uh, Patterson, you recently co-authored a piece for uh, uh, University of Melbourne's Pursuit, the online magazine of research, ideas and commentary. The piece, which I will be sure to link to at the New Daily, was titled The Privacy Paradox, Why We Let Ourselves Be Monitored. The focus is on digital virtual assistants such as Siri as they bring convenience, we trade away our privacy. We'll come back to her uh, in a moment. Firstly, though, 
Tell us about the privacy paradox, how it's emerged as an issue, but also as a kind of, uh, in, in my mind thinking, uh, a double-edged consciousness. And how entrenched is it considering the, the multiple data breach scandals? Have they had any real impact on how most people live their lives and protect themselves? Well, there's a complex bundle of questions there, um, but I'll try and make my way through them. And first of all, I'll start with the privacy paradox. And that's the idea that when you survey people, and there's repeated surveys about um, consumers' attitudes to privacy, um, by the ACCC, Deloitte's um, Consumer Policy Research Centre, to name a few, just in the last um, 18 months. Um, when you survey people about privacy, they say they're concerned about privacy and they're concerned about digital privacy. Uh, they often talk about it, the idea that it's creepy that our digital devices are collecting information about us. But you, if you look at the actual practices of consumers, we tend to give away a lot of information. Um, leave to one side you know, issues about um, government um, initiatives to use online services. In our use of social media, apps, um, online entertainment, consumers are constantly allowing information to be collected about them and indeed giving that information over. Now, why why is that? It's hard to know. Um, I don't think it's that consumers are in some way lying to survey um, the people who are doing the surveys. I think the answer is it's very difficult um, actually to, to control our privacy um, or to take measures to restrict the information that's collected about it, particularly, in, in fact, in the Australian environment, because we're constantly being bombarded with um, you know, click here to get access to service, click here to get access to a product. Um, there's often privacy policies associated with those services and products, but we don't have time to read them. We don't necessarily have the expertise to, to um, decode the information that's being given to us. Um, uh, we want the service. And so there's a couple of behavioural biases, which we can come to later, that means that consumers tend to pay attention to the thing they want now, not the risk that's occurring in the future. Now, there have been some very um, prominent privacy breaches um, in the last few years, and no doubt that's had effect on um, consumers' attitudes to privacy. Those surveys that I talked about suggest consumers do try to take some measures. For example, when we're online, we often use a we don't use our own name, we might use a different birthday, we try and delete our browsing history or we use anonymous browsing. But at the same time, the ways of collecting information about us moves faster than we can keep up with. I think most consumers may not be aware that when you're walking around a shopping centre, if you have Bluetooth on your phone activated, the shopping centre is actually tracking your movements around the shop and, in fact, noticing which shops you stop at and how long you pause. So part of the answer is the technology is moving very fast. Let's talk about those digital assistants. In the pursuit piece, you and your co-authors write... We have humanised them with names and the typically female voice reassures us by playing on our biases to make these compromises seem less sinister. In other words, we don't feel the need to protect ourselves because of the voice that is both warm or warm enough, but also carries authority, is my reading of it. I guess the thinking is that this was the evil plan all along. Well, it's interesting. Um, digital assistants, Syrian her friends are increasingly prominent in our lives and a lot of work has got into those voices. Um, the, the various companies that um, create them did lots and lots of research and lots of work to get the right voice. You know, it's a female voice. 
you can draw a number of <laughs> um, inferences from that. It's a warm voice. It's a slightly cheeky voice, actually. Um, Siri is not totally subservient. She might have a little bit of pushback. Same with Alexa. Um, so, yes, lots of work has gone into the voice to make the voice trustworthy, to create a relationship with the digital assistance with the aim of making that assistance an integral part, I think, of people's home lives um, and therefore also enabling a great deal of information to be collected about people in their homes, which is, of course, of great use to marketing companies. Do you, do you use them yourself? I, I actually don't. Um, um, they get on my nerves. Do you, do you actually use them yourself? I actually don't use them because I've done too much research into them. Uh, we have Megan and I are actually doing a larger piece um, looking at all sorts of aspects of digital assistance, and we also have a colleague of ours who's researching digital assistance and the whole um, acoustic element of these new technologies. He actually has digital assistants sitting in his office so he can play with them. I haven't gone that far yet, but I may well do so when I get back to work. But it will be contained in my office, not in my house. <laughs> All right. Look, you also talk about behavioural biases that, that come into play, which you, you did in fact mention. Again, quoting from your piece, people are poor at assessing future risks and either exaggerate or downplay them according to current experience. Also, due to present bias or the desire for instant gratification, people tend to choose present gain over future benefits. This means if the privacy risk is abstract, it will be downplayed, particularly in the face of a present reward, like the convenience of a, a voice-activated assistant, uh, the pull of social media, or a response to a present threat. It sounds like we're inherently psychologically built for a privacy takeover. Is, is that going too far? No, I, John, I don't think it is going too far, but it's not just a privacy takeover, it's an autonomy and agency takeover. Um, marketing companies have been on, have understood a lot about behavioural psychology for a long time. A lot of marketing techniques are, in fact, um, designed precisely to play on these particular biases. And that's become even more sophisticated now that the collection of data from our online interactions allows quite targeted and individualised marketing. Um, so marketing strategies, and indeed we've seen this in political campaigns online as well, are very well targeted at pushing um, people in particular directions by, you know, playing on their concerns about um, risks to their livelihoods and they're then presenting a solution whether that be a product or a political party. So I think it's a real concern. Um, that said, there are other ways to respond to this. Um, we're inherently psychologically built for a privacy takeover. I don't think uh, it's not so much that we're inherently built for that. It's that we tend to respond to the risks that are the most pertinent in our minds and we tend to downplay things we don't understand or we downplay future gain to prioritise future benefit. It is possible that we could reconstruct privacy protection um, and consumer protection to make the risks of certain behaviour much more salient in people's minds. And that would start by a lot more transparency around what happens with digital devices, the collection of data and digital marking so that people are more aware of the risks or the uses that arise from these privacy eroding products. 
A, a film that I really liked was She with uh, Welcome Phoenix, who had Scarlett Johansson's voice as, as his company and, uh, for company and companionship. And she went beyond being useful to being something he psychologically depended upon. You mentioned about people, sometimes consumers can start to feel like they're in a kind of relationship with these digital assistants. Is, is there any, uh, any understanding of how far that can go with people? I, I know that's sort of maybe up to not quite in your wheelhouse, but it's, a, it's an interesting idea. It is an interesting idea. And next semester with my colleagues, we're teaching a new subject, um, an undergraduate subject at, at the University of Melbourne, which is AI, ethics and law. And she's actually one of the films we'll be discussing because uh, it's just so right. fascinating in terms of that um, relationship. Now, uh, there are actually whole research centres. There's one, for example, I was visiting recently in Berkeley that trying to understand more about this human-machine interaction uh, and the ways in which it changes uh, not just uh, the way we interact uh, in the world in the sense of the convenience of having, you know, digital assistants that can turn off and on the lights or help us drive our cars, but how it changes how we understand ourselves, in fact. So these are really important questions for humanity, I think. Um, I don't have the answers, but I certainly think it's a field that we need to be thinking out a lot more. I mean, I'll just make one other comment there. The reverse side of that is there's a number of examples of people who, for one reason or another, um, can't read or can't get access to text that's in a book and the, the digital assistants in those in their lives have been actually remarkable because they've opened up a whole world because they're voice activated. Yeah, but I, can, I can imagine they sort of get a bit panicky if, if suddenly uh, for some technical reason they're not there. That's, uh, well, that's true that's too, yeah. Uh, Turning to you, Megan Richardson, as I understand it, the expression right to privacy was apparently coined in 1890, somewhat ironically referencing fears that people held about the camera, which we are now all desperately in love with. Uh, this was at a time when technology was uh, at the heart of the Belle Epoque, and so much was exciting and new. And at the same time, privacy was emerging as an issue of concern. As I understand it, the camera concern was articulated by two American lawyers, Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis, who famously described the right to privacy as the right to be let alone. As you explain in your book, they came to this position via a response to what was called the yellow press. And here we are more than a century later with News Limited phone hacking scandals and a bloated celebrity culture that offers up people for closer scrutiny like game on a hunting safari. And was there back in 19th century, the 19th century, a genuine feeling among ordinary people that their privacy was under threat? Oh, look, those are really good questions. Uh, that book, when I was writing, I was and I was reading this article, which I've read many times now by Warner Brandeis. It's a fabulous article and it's easily accessible on the internet, the public internet, for anyone who wants to look it up. It was published in the 1890 Harvard Law Review. And so Warren and Brandeis were... Not just talking about the yellow press, they were also talking about another technology, as you say, the photography, which everyone had fallen in love with. It was like this enormous development of the 19th century for the everyday person, and especially by the late 1880s when Eastman invented the uh, camera that people could carry around with the film in it, and then they could just take the photographs. You push the button, we do the rest. I think was the way it was marketed by Eastman. 
So that was also one of their concerns. So it was a combination of the media enterprise and this new technology of instant uh, photography, as they were talking about it, which is so easy that anyone could do it and was marketed to use it all the time. So the lawyer, the lawyers saw the vulnerability, but whereas the public just saw the, this brand new fantastic toy. Is that well, I think it's very yeah. similar to now. It's a, it's a lot with technologies, new technologies. Like we love the new technology; it just seems so exciting. It can, can extend us in so many ways. Uh, but at the same time, it has these risks and kind of aspects to it, which we might be quite aware of actually as well. But how do, we've got this tension between wanting to protect ourselves from risk maybe not perfectly, but at least caring enough to be voicing that and thinking about it. And then on the other hand, really wanting to access and use this technology. And I don't think it was just Warren and Brandeis or a kind of upper middle class concern. There were lots of concerns about what they called Kodak as lying in wait and watching people falling off their bicycles and taking photographs of them. All right. And lots of comments that I read in the media and that in the newspaper press in that time which were about the way that news uh, or some of the media, the yellow press, were operating. As I understand it, something of a milestone was reached in 1967 with the yes. publication of Alan, Alan Weston's Privacy and Freedom, which defined privacy in terms of self-determination. Privacy is the claim of individuals, groups or institutions to determine for themselves when, how and to what extent information about them is communicated to others. Given the cultural upheaval at that time, the great feelings of optimism, did Westerns sort of create a, a kind of line in the sand with, with that analysis? And he was also talking about computerised databases and uh, technologies then already and thinking about the state and about large kind of enterprise. So he was really at the beginning of a movement towards that, what we can call privacy in a sense of control over personal information, but we might also call data protection. And that's the European language. So for instance, there were big changes that were going on in Europe around the same time. And then we end up with some major ref law reforms, for instance, the German Census Act case in the 1980s, where they, the German Constitutional Court is finding this a right to informational self-determination, as they call it, in this case, right. as an act of resistance to a, a rather intrusive uh, census that the German government uh, was uh, promoting or wanting to run. And so using the right to dignity and the right to free development of personality in the German constitution, they came up with this right of informational self-determination. So that definitely in America, we see this growing awareness and a discussion about privacy in the way that Western talks about it as about controlling your personal information, quite a libertarian idea, I think. And then at the same time in Europe, you're seeing growing concerns about kind of the power that goes with controlling and massing data and how that can be resisted uh, and what laws there should be to aid with that. So on the, on the American side, there seems to have been a, a strong link between technology and privacy. The whole history of privacy, I think, has been very intermingled with technology. So you can think about the instantaneous or you can think about cameras and photography in the 19th century. A lot of the development of the law was around then. And that's what Warren and Brandeis are talking about, as well mm. as the technology of the press, uh, the technologies associated with the press. And then in the 20th century, you start to get these databases that are computerized databases or early kinds of uh, forms of databases and aided by technologies. And then again, uh, kind of real concerns about how information has been collected and, and held and then used and accessed and processed in various ways. 
And now we're getting the same thing in the 21st century, and I think the COVID Safe app is a good example of that and other kinds of tracking devices. An interesting thing, though, at the time, as I as I understood it, that the census in the US, people often contributed to it, contributed from, on postcards where all the information was basically available to be read by the postman and everybody else. Is that right? Oh, I should have looked that up. I don't know the answer to that, but it's, that's fascinating. <laughs> Maybe that was a trust in the postal system. It wasn't necessarily meaning they would expect it to be published in the newspaper. Maybe that's right. Look, when you 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 said you sort of worked twice with the Australian Law Reform Commission exploring the meaning of privacy. Where's your starting point when you go to do that work, and how was privacy framed in law uh, when you first went there, or or, and as it is now, I guess, and how was the meaning further advanced? Uh, well, okay, so we had this first review of for your information. Australian Privacy Law and Practice, which was actually about the Privacy Act and how that should uh, be changed. That was in 2008. And I was just one of a group of scholars who were brought together to talk, or to help the Law Reform Commission identify a meaning of privacy. And I remember we couldn't agree on it at that time. So it was a very long and enjoyable discussion. And then I think came up with something which is very much along the lines of Alan Weston kind of informational control as a focus. And that fitted with what the Law Reform Commission was thinking about in that time, which was reviewing our Privacy Act, which is our data protection regime, essentially. And then the later review was in 2014, and that was the Australian Law Reform Commission's inquiry into should we have a, a tort for serious invasion of privacy? And I was one yes. of the consulting group on that question. I wasn't leading the review, but I was. Uh, I enjoyed the experience of being part of that review. And... That, I think, was, it was certainly concerned with this idea about controlling personal information, but a lot of the cases that individuals bring, and this is why I think lawyers often talk and kind of how people feel and think about things, is you see this often, it comes out in cases, but a lot of the cases that people actually bring to complain about privacy using whatever doctrines they have available, like breach of confidence, will be about that privacy of private life, the kind of right to be let alone that Warren and Brandeis we're talking about, which is still very much an understanding of privacy, I think. I actually was thinking last night, because I, I, I avoid the supermarket. I have a couple of vulnerabilities to COVID-19, so I actually have to sort of try, try and avoid it. But I, I did go down there last night with my wife and I was looking in at it and it was just this chaos. I was thinking, this, there's no social distancing going on here. Uh, you know, you, you just can't get away from people. And I wonder, I wonder if there's a, a, a case to argue that the privacy... It's a privacy issue at these times. You you need that extra layer of privacy just to protect yourself to stay alive. Yes, I definitely think uh, that's right. And in fact, a lot of what's happening to us now is not just about the kind of how our information has been collected and whether you know we're comfortable with that and the health kind of justifications, which are very strong as well. I, I mean, I must say, but also, what about the whole dimension of being put in our homes and having falling back on this private sphere, which on the one hand, is quite draconian, but on the other hand, suddenly we're having this experience of being having a really close private life, maybe in a way that we didn't all before. And I know, and I, I'm sure that Jeannie will be thinking, not all of us, uh, that there's an equity issue there as well. But I do think that there is this other dimension of privacy, and it's still there, and it's still very much part of our lives often. Uh, look, I'm keen to hear from both of you on the issue of, of COVID Safe, the federal government's app that is meant to facilitate contact 
uh, tracing and to limit any spread of community infection. There are issues reported this week that useful data is yet to emerge from the states. Now, the minimum target was to get about 6 million people to download the app. It's from the top of my head, to be honest, and, and, and keep their Bluetooth running and therefore will be traceable. The government has still not quite reached that target. Do you see this as largely a privacy concern by the public, or do you think it's possible that many people aren't signing, uh, signing up for the app for the same reason, that they're not habitually following social distance rules, because they think that, look, they're okay and therefore everybody else can carry the load. What's your take on that, uh, Jeannie Patterson? Uh, well, I think um, that comes back to some of those considerations we were talking about earlier about why people both say that they're concerned about privacy and also um, constantly are giving away information about themselves through their use of digital technologies, um, which is people, if you ask them, would you like to do something to help the community, they're undoubtedly going to say yes. But when it comes yeah. down to it, there's a yeah, there's a number of hurdles that they may have to overcome. First one is they just have to act. <laughs> they have to come overcome that sort of uh, it's easier to stay the way I am. The next one is that they need to have a phone that can use the technology. And I think we have to remember that there's a lot of people out there who are using old phones or don't have phones that um, have Bluetooth technology that can be activated. So there's a there's actually just a digital poverty issue there. Um, they have to have the ability, in the technical sense, to download and run the app, which not all is, not all people will have. Um, and that's I don't think is age related. My parents, who are eighty, have downloaded the app and are using it happily. Uh, I think there are concerns about privacy. Remember the distrust that was engendered over the attempt to send the census online. Um, and then I think yeah. there are, yeah, I think there are those behavioural biases. Um, on the one hand, um, there's the sense of um, that we want to help, that there's a there's a state of emergency. That's the language that's been been used by the government. You know, we're all in this together. We need to pull together to get over this crisis. That would tend to incline, I think, people to download the app, particularly when there's a present reward of being able to get outside. But as you also mentioned, there's a couple of countervailing considerations, which is for many people, COVID is not perceived as a present risk to them, which um, takes away that incentive to do something that they don't quite understand. Um, there's concerns about privacy. And importantly, there's also concerns about how well or whether um, the COVID Safe app actually works in um, combating or contact tracing. There's been a bit of mixed messaging there. Um, in fact, it's called COVID Safe. It's not a shield. It's not protecting us from COVID-19. It's a tracing app. Uh, and it's unclear, you know, whether as a tracing app, whether it's going to be helpful or effective. Maybe the people feel that, you know, there's just not enough a case for it to be um, contributing to the effort to combat COVID-19, particularly when our infection rates are falling. That's right. And, and then, of course, it's also the case that, uh, you know, we, we sort of think, oh, well, we're waiting for it to work, but maybe you need more people signing up to help to, to, to actually generate uh, meaningful data. Well, you certainly do. I mean, the government talked about having about 40% sign-up. The one in Singapore yeah. had a 20% sign-up, which I find really interesting because we normally think of Singapore yeah. as having a very sort of rule-abiding community. Um, yeah, very civic-minded. Yeah, we've got about 40%. I think some epidemiologists are saying we need 60% because yeah. um, 
Otherwise, we're just not going to get enough information. I would never want to talk down the risks of, of, of the disease at all. And uh, But I have, to, I have to say, if we actually went around and looked at every single supermarket in the country and see that they're jam-packed with people and thinking, well, are many people getting sick? It's almost, it's almost like uh, there's an argument there that maybe... I don't know, things are, are certainly on the improve, not, not that they're in any way uh, resolved. Yeah, it's partly related, I suspect, to the news cycle. When we're seeing, you know, images of people um, very sick, um, in, being incubated, it's foremost in our mind, but those images have perhaps started to drop away. Um, and hence the people's focus is on getting on this outside, getting the economy going, and it's, there's a tension there, certainly. Um, at, I think it comes back to an app is only one stage in our, is only one tool in the fight against the disease. But it, it does illustrate, you know, we're still using Siri and we're worried about the COVID safety. <laughs> I was going to, if I can add just one more thing before Megan comes in. Um, Megan's mentioned those two period, those two suggestions and those two law reform um, inquiries that have been held. But there's been another one. There's, um, there's actually an inquiry into digital platforms that reported last year. And again, we've come back with suggestions um, for changes to our privacy regime. And this time, as Megan has pointed out, prompted by concerns about technology and the most recent technology that's prompting calls for reform is actually digital platforms, such as Google and, and Apple and Amazon. Yes, I was involved in a panel discussion for that and mm. it was amazing to see how seriously privacy is talked about in the same time as talking about digital platforms and how they're working and so on. So, uh, John, I was telling you about that book that I, and you mentioned the one that I was writing, had just sent the manuscript off a month ago. I had to yes. completely write the last section of it because when I finished it at the end of last year and then I was tidying up some pieces, I was talking all about the tech clash, which is all the big thing last year about uh, in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal and various other scandals, like as Jeannie mentioned, there have been so many scandals. Uh, people are really starting to turn against these technologies and say that laws should regulate them more effectively than they have in the past. And this is an international movement. But then, well, have things really changed now is the question. Suddenly we're becoming much more kind of pressured to think about how technologies can help us, not just make our lives convenient, but really help us in major health pandemic kind of terms, and yet also concerned and worrying about privacy. And I think I said in the end in the book, I still think privacy is important even in today's world. Yes, I saw that. And I, I was thinking about, you know, you've got this, this book almost done, which must have been, as I, you know, you, getting a book just about finished, it's this great sense of relief. You think, oh, thank God. And then the pandemic hit. I mean, <laughs> part of you must have gone, oh, my God, I've got to go back and do a whole lot of work now. <laughs> yes. I was also thinking again about the history and looking back at the 1918 pandemic and think that was yeah. interesting because it wasn't that long before 1948 and then you had the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, including the right to privacy. So it wasn't like yeah. privacy just disappeared and never came back again. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if these periodic bouts of scepticism about what the government is up to, and I do look at the relatively poor uptake of the My Health Record initiative, lends people the opportunity to feel like they're fighting and even beating the surveillance state. Uh, do you think these moments of resistance actually create a false sense of security about privacy? And also, they take the, way the, they take the focus away from personal agency and responsibility, something, of course, 
uh, you know, Jeannie's talking about, really. In your pursuit piece, Jeannie Patterson, you give a number of helpful tips about how people can protect themselves, but the problem seems to be people taking up that good advice, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think as a consumer protection, um, from a consumer protection perspective, I think what we tend to look at is opportunities to empower people. Agency and control are really important. They're part of, you know, recognising what we are as humans, that we have are able to make choices in our own lives. So I think it's really important to give people those choices at, any, at every moment possible. But I think we also need, need to realise that people don't always take up those opportunities and it's not because they don't they don't value freedom it's because they're living busy lives people are overwhelmed we've got so many things that happen that are happening I mean if you're being asked to homeschool your children on zoom the last thing you're going to be thinking about are the privacy policies that attach to that zoom technology do you tend to read the fire print I never do I mean it's oh, a, a really uh, terrible well I do system. actually because I'm that's my that's my area of expertise <laughs> so I probably am one of those people that does read the fine print but the bottom line is I can read it but I can't do anything about it so while we gave some tips in our article which are things like even if you can't if, you, if you're not sure about the privacy policy, go through and shut things down and turn things off and get rid of them if you don't need them anymore. But, you know, um, autonomy or agency-enhancing measures always, I think, need to be complemented with um, boundaries beyond which corporations cannot go. So we need good, solid fairness regimes in there as well that say, you know, this is the limits of what can be done. It's simply not appropriate for example, to collect a whole lot of information of ch about children. So I think we also need to have a conversation not just about individual responses, where we as a state or as a community um, want the limits to be placed and what values and ethics are important to us. You know, I, 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 I did a bit of reading and, and of course, the internet's such a wonderful thing so it just throws up all sorts of ideas and, and, and many of them don't have any worth at all, but they're apart from their entertainment value. Um, I, I was sort of reading there's an argument that eventually, and look, perhaps as p pandemics become more frequent or deadly, that we'll be forced to, to give up our privacy just about altogether for the sake of survival. In other words, we'll eventually return to the highly transparent existence that has characterised most of the human experiment. Or are we already just about there? Is that, is that, is that getting a bit too grim? Well, I, think, I hope that it is too grim, but, I mean, I'm waiting to see... I'm going to be looking with a lot of interest at what does happen now. I think at the moment we are still thinking a lot about privacy. I don't think we have lost a sense of privacy is important. I know and appreciate everything that you've been saying and that also that Jenny's been saying. Often people do their best in the circumstances to look after their interests and they keep agitating for them and that's an important element as well and they might they might not always set, do the settings right. They may not even appreciate exactly how they have to do it, and those tips in pursuit are fantastic are there in that respect. They might argue about it afterwards. They might want to take up a complaint to the Privacy Commission, and that we do have a Privacy Commission in Australia, and we do have the state levels also uh, receives there, and we do have uh, the access to the courts for some people, and we do have the possibility of class actions, which I think are growing now. So there's a lot going on, and I think we're in a kind of environment where it's not just 
move towards surveillance, but there's a whole lot of other kinds of counter moves and discussions and debates that are going on at the same time. Yeah, because I mean, it's an idea that basically the privacy as we think of it now really only emerged about 150 years ago. And, and some people say it's just an anomaly. It is just an anomaly. And, uh, and and not built to last, but let's let's hope that's true. Uh, well, I wouldn't. A, I wouldn't say it just emerged 150 years ago. Although I think it came to a kind of crescendo 150 years ago and started to really become a big feature of the law. I think. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's. I wouldn't say it's just one social construct from a particular period and then it'll disappear again. I wouldn't say that at all. And the other thing is that we are lucky. We're in a world where a lot of us are able to have some privacy or some privacy and so we can enjoy privacy and that may not have been possible in other times and I'm hoping it will still be possible in the future. And Jeannie Patterson, what are you, you, you don't see uh, privacy as an endangered, uh, spe- uh, endangered animal or something? Uh, well, I watch a lot of those dystopian movies where privacy is gone. I mean, starting with 1994, actually. I mean, the book, not the movie. 1984. Uh, yeah, 1984, the book. I mean, that's that that's the sort of ultimate dystopian future, isn't it? Uh, but I remain pretty optimistic, I think. I think at the end of the day, uh, at least those of us who have the, and I have to say, those of us who have the luxury of being able to enjoy our privacy I don't think we do take it for granted. I'm optimistic this pandemic will, in fact, us make it appreciate us more. Um, I wanted to go back to the movie that we started with her because what I love about that movie is it's the AI who leaves. Yes, that's right. <laughs> because the human well, she, existence well, she, is she not had, enough. She had the personality in the relationship, didn't she? She had more yeah. of the personality. <laughs> but she also, she herself wanted to transcend this sort of um, the relationship in the human world and move to um, perhaps a, a existence where she herself um, had more agency and um, identity. So I kind of, in a perverse way, see that as a very optimistic take on um, what will happen with our relationship with AI. I mean, hopefully it will prompt us to think more carefully about what is important about being human. Now suddenly I'm feeling a bit more poignant towards Siri and her needs. No, uh, don't so do that. I'll have to... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Listen, thank you to both of you for, for, for being with me today. Um, it's such a great area and uh, it's just been wonderful having you on today. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. Oh, it's been a delight. All right. Well, look, uh, next week we'll be back. I have no idea what we'll be talking about, but I tell you, it's going to be fascinating. Uh, As always, look after yourselves. Try and keep away from one another as much as we're all very attracted to one another. Keep your distance. Look after yourselves. Thanks for listening. Farewell.